Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're pleased to have as our guest Professor Boyd J. Peterson, Program Coordinator for Mormon Studies at Utah Valley University and the recently appointed editor of Dialogue. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll visit us online at dialoguejournal.com and subscribe to the print or electronic version of Dialogue. And while there, please consider making a contribution to help keep Dialogue financially viable. This year, 2016, marks Dialogue's 50th year of publication. We'll be honoring three outstanding individuals who exemplify the spirit of Dialogue. Pioneering African-American Mormon Darius Gray, the Utah Supreme Court's first woman Chief Justice, Christine Durham, and former church historian and general authority emeritus, Marlon Jensen. KUER Radio West host Doug Fabrizio will curate a conversation among our honorees. Our Master of Ceremonies will be Salt Lake Tribune humor columnist Robert Kirby, and music will be performed by the Lower Lights. This will be a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. You can purchase tickets on the Dialogue website, but don't wait until the event is sold out. We hope to see you there. And now to our podcast, featuring Boyd Peterson speaking to a gathering of the Miller-Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California, on how to navigate, or help someone else navigate, a faith crisis. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Boyd Peterson, who's the Program Coordinator for Mormon Studies at Utah Valley University and also the newly appointed editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. He's a prolific essayist. He's got a great book of essays called Dead Wood and Rushing Water, Essays on Mormon Faith, Family, and Culture. Uh, I had known of Boyd for a number of years. I'd heard him speak. He wrote a great biography of uh, his father-in-law, Hugh Nibley. Uh, And uh, so I've heard him speak about that. But the first time I really, I think, interacted with you personally was when we both spoke at a conference at Utah Valley University, and I had been asked to speak, it was called Mormonism in the Public Mind, and I titled my topic, The Politics of Morality, and the subtitle was The Church's Involvement in Prop 8. So Boyd, who was on the same program, came back, and he said he was going to talk about the morality of politics. I don't remember that. And you can look at that both ways, right? The challenges of Mormon tribalism. So that was an interesting uh, opportunity to meet Boyd. He has a BA from BYU, an MA from the University of Maryland, and a PhD in comparative literature from uh, the University of Utah. And his biography of Hugh Nibley won the Best Biography Award from MHA. I was the one that was in charge of finding the new editor for Dialogue. I was in charge of the search committee, and I can tell you we had a number of fabulous people that had applied to be the editor, but when it came right down to it, there was no question that Boyd was the right guy, and so we're pleased that he can be here today. Uh, I will just say, on a personal note, he is married to the former Zina Nibley, 
who teaches British literature and language at BYU and is Hugh Nibley's daughter. They have four children. They live in Orem, Utah, where Boyd has, I think, twice run for Congress on the Democratic ticket or for a state legislature, uh, knowing full well that he didn't have a snowball's <laughs> chance in hell if he was going to be a Democrat. Uh, and he's also a gospel doctrine teacher. Boyd? Well, I just want to say I got 30% of the vote. <laughs> and in a district that had 5% Democrats, I thought that was pretty good. So that's a win. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I, I always enjoy coming to California. And the last time I came here, I didn't get to the beach, so I'm happy to be back. Um, because I get to redeem that. But um, before I start, I, I'm just curious, um, maybe I could just ask, how many of you either have had or know somebody who's gone through a, a faith crisis of some kind? Oh, well, that's... So we're in the right place, then. <laughs> so tonight I want to I talk about that. I've, uh, my background, I, I'm kind of... Um, my job at UBU is to teach, I teach Mormon Studies courses, and um, it's a state school, so I can't get up and bear my testimony. I can't, uh, you know, I, I have to be very careful about what I say in the classroom. Um, and, and so I kind of joke, we've, we've got a very good relationship with the Institute, our program, but um, I kind of joke that I'm the instigator of the of the problems and then the institute cleans up after me. But uh, so I, I felt kind of responsible about this idea of faith crises. I, I've had, I, I don't know why, I, uh, the students come to me when they're having problems and, uh, and I've heard a number, I feel like kind of the bishop on campus or something. So, um, so I've had a number of people uh, who've come to me and, and so I'm, I'm going to read parts of this because this is um, stuff I want to get right. Many years ago, I took a flight from Baltimore to New York on a turboprop airplane, which was a pretty small plane. And I love to fly, uh, and I'd never experienced a turboprop, so I was really excited to get on the plane. But what started out as an adventure ended up this really nerve-wracking experience when we hit some turbulence just outside of Baltimore. We ran into a storm there. And one minute everything was fine, then things got bumpy, everything started shaking, we were diving and then climbing and bouncing back and forth, the passengers were gripping their armrests with white-knuckled anxiety at the mercy of the elements and our pilot's skills. Um, this turbulent, turbulence roller coaster didn't last that long, but I'll never forget the feelings of terror and helplessness I felt that day. I've experienced these same emotions of fear and vulnerability as I've confronted issues that have troubled my faith over the years and as I've watched friends and family members go through the same process. This helplessness and fear are tangible. They hit you at a gut level, leaving you terrified and unsure of your future, immediate or eternal. Worst of all, unlike on a plane where we're, we're seated next to you or fellow travelers who uh, at least you don't feel alone, in a faith crisis, you do feel like you're all alone. Uh, you don't feel safe speaking up in Sunday school classes or talking to ward members and friends. You may try to bring it up with your bishop, only discover that he has no understanding of the issues that you're going through. Um, you worry that people will either dismiss you or call you to repentance. You feel isolated, you're in pain, you're afraid for the future. 
Also, unlike the bumps and jolts in a flight, faith transitions don't calm down to the same state they were before the turbulence. In a plane, the storm pressure, the storm or pressure change usually passes and things go back to normal. But after a faith crisis, things just tend not to. Um, you'll likely never be the same. Going through this transformation or watching someone you love go through it isn't very easy. But I believe it can actually lead to a deeper faith or a richer life and greater communion with those you love. But it does require more than just new information. I think it requires a paradigm, a new paradigm of belief. Now I've written elsewhere about my faith, my own kind of faith journey. Mine was much more prolonged, I think, than some, starting when I was quite young and continuing into my 30s. So I want to kind of dissect the words, I know the church is true, because that became very problematical to me, but one word at a time. The first word to cause me trouble was the word church. Now, I grew up with parents who didn't attend church. They were inactive, and I grew up in the, you know, the heart of Provo, where um, I felt this huge shame that my parents didn't go to church, and the cupboard had the, the cabinet of shame where they kept the coffee. <laughs> and so I felt really deeply scarred by this. <laughs> I later found out we were probably the most normal ward in our neighborhood, or the most normal families in our neighborhood. But I found in church these people who really loved me and cared about me um, and who valued religion. And I always had this deep sense of, of, uh, of the spiritual. I really wanted that. And so... I, I really love going to church, but I also saw hypocrisy and unkindness in church members. So the idea that people in the church were somehow better never really set well with me. I knew my parents were really great people, even though they didn't drink coffee. Nevertheless, I did find people at church who nurtured my soul's inner yearnings for an understanding and connection with God. I came to think, as many do, of the gospel being true, but the church as being flawed. So when in my youth testimony meeting I got up to bear my testimony, I said that I know the church is true. What I really meant was I know the gospel is true. Later as an undergraduate at BYU, I, I got home from my mission full of zeal for church history and, and theology. And I landed the perfect job and then met the perfect woman to really get into this. Um, so I grew up with, you know, I, I married Cunibles daughter, which gave me kind of an inside access there. But I also ended up working in a bookstore in Provo, a used bookstore, which was not a very profitable place, obviously. My wife kept asking me if sometime we could have our, my paycheck in money instead of books. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it, was, it, it was just this wonderful place where I had access to all kinds of esoteric books and uh, met all kinds of esoteric people. And I was also plugged into the 1980s equivalent of the internet, an underground world of Mormon book nerds who traded Xerox copies of theses, dissertations, letters, and manuscripts. You can't know how fun that was because nobody else had this stuff. The internet's ruined that. I learned about complicated historical problems like the Mountain Meadows Massacre and multiple accounts of the First Vision, as well as how our theology has evolved over the years. And I also learned that church leaders had said and written some rather racist and sexist things, and occasionally done some things that were less than heroic. 
All of this caused problems with me, uh, for me, when testimony re meeting rolled around. Which church was true? The church of the past or the present? Which parts of it? The organization itself, priesthood authority, and which doctrines or practices would I allow into my increasingly complicated definition? The next word to become problematic for me was the word I. I know that seems weird, but that one was a problem. In a graduate seminar, seminar at the University of Maryland, we studied the concept of the subject in Western thought. We studied the idea of how the self is shaped, uh, and, and we looked in literary and psychological and philosophical and historical perspectives. And I realized that this entity I knew as me, uh, as the core of myself, was actually a socially constructed character. And furthermore, in grad school, I began taking courses in biblical studies and Bible as a literature. And these studies uprooted from my belief system any sense that a written text, whether the Bible or the Book of Mormon, could be the direct, unfiltered word of God. Lower criticism taught me how biblical manuscripts were altered through time as they were hand-copied by scribes over generations. And higher criticism taught me about historical processes and influences that any human text goes through. Later, my struggle with depression further eroded the idea that I could actually know myself. Ironically, when I got help, when I first took an antidepressant and realized that this was an amazing thing, I, 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 it was wintertime, I get very bad seasonal affective disorder, and uh, I, I realized, I had this epiphany that winter could be fun. This just, I, I'd never experienced that. But I came to question how much of what I felt uh, was I was actually caused by chemicals in my brain and how much was a production of a deeply centered soul. I began to question the ability of any person to know him or herself in any kind of fundamental way. So when I said, I know the church is true, what I was I talking about? So finally, reading Nietzsche during my PhD coursework really sent me for a loop. Don't read Nietzsche at Christmas time. It will ruin your Christmas. Just don't do it. There's lots of better things. Um, so I was reading Nietzsche, and in his essay, uh, Truth and Lie in an Extra Moral Sense, Nietzsche notes that our understanding of everything relies on a series of metaphorical relationships. Our eyes detect the patterns of light reflected by an object, then the brain transforms the, that pattern into an idea or concept, then a word is attached to it. None of these points of reference, the pattern of light, the idea, the word, capture the true nature of reality. They're all metaphors, as he says. Uh, on top of that, language forces us to generalize about the essence of the objects and beings and other phenomena we encounter. So by the time I was done with Nietzsche, I was confident that I really knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> so testimony meeting became a huge dilemma. How could I say I know the church is true when I couldn't know anything, including myself. And I didn't think my word would understand if I added, but of course this is a lie to the end of my testimony. <laughs> so what could I possibly mean if I said the church, whatever that is, is true? Could I mean that it has a monopoly on some kind of knowledge, which is impossible if knowing itself is impossible? Could I mean that the church in some sense is as an expression of an ultimate reality, which is likewise impossible if we can't really know anything? Could I mean that the church is more efficacious in making people better than other institutions, but how could we know that? Does it provide a better path to understanding? If so, how? I felt stuck. Now, what I experienced was bigger than any church leader could help me with. 
My bishop at the time of this last crisis was a really fine man, but he was a firefighter, not a philosopher. Fortunately, I knew I wasn't alone. I had friends who were going through the same kind of things I was going through, and I learned how to construct a kind of post-critical faith. The spiritual vertigo has subsided, and I feel, as the French would say, bien dans ma peau, good in my skin, I feel well in my skin. However, I'll never be able to go back to the days before Nietzsche and biblical criticism, and nor do I really want to. We hear the words faith crisis quite frequently in Mormonism right now, and chances are you, and, and obviously we proved that, have known somebody who's gone through it. I, I, wanna, I didn't prepare an overhead because I just did one thing I wanted to show you. So I just prepared a handout. I don't know if... And there's probably not enough for everybody, but maybe you could look over somebody's shoulder. Um, this is a, a little uh, tracing from Google of the words faith crisis, or crisis of faith, rather, um, that I just did a Google book search to see how, how often it's appeared. And it's quite interesting. Around 18... So it, it's pretty flatlined until 1860, which is kind of interesting. So any ideas what would have happened in 1860 to give us a bump in the word faith crisis? The Civil War is about there. 1859 was a really significant year. Darwin's Origin of the Species was published. So that's my guess there, is that that resulted in our little bump. Um, yeah, it, it didn't probably, but I'm sure it's interesting because even though Darwin's um, book uh, wasn't necessarily read by everybody, the ideas were out there, and it's even talked about in general conference soon thereafter. You see it starts to go up right after World War II or around World War II as well, which I, I don't think there's any reason to, to question why that happens. But then you see it just skyrocket through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and on into the 2000s. So it's really interesting that this is a big deal. It's, it's going on. What's, what's kind of encouraging, it looks like there maybe it's coming down a little bit. So maybe we're reaching an apex. Who knows? But, you know, I don't think faith crises are anything new. I mean, you know, they've been around at least since the time of Cain. So... <laughs> But, but I think one thing that's really interesting, the Internet has really changed things. So, you know, when I was, you know, a kid and looking at these strange documents in bookstores, most of my, you know, people I went to church with didn't have access to this stuff. They had no idea about this stuff. But now all things are present. The changing theology, the historical conundrums, ethical lapses, racism, sexism, everything is a Google search away. And I think many people, at least my experience, is that many people are crying for answers. But the problem here is the questions and doubts seem to multiply, even as church leaders and well-intentioned members try to respond. It's, it's like this kind of, uh, it just keeps going. Now, I, I have to confess here, I recently watched, um, and I don't recommend you do this, but on this kind of person who loves punishment, I guess, but I, I recently watched the painful disciplinary action for Jeremy Runnels, the author of the CES letter, um, mm. and, and I wouldn't recommend you Google it, it's really painful, but I, and I don't want to comment on the ethics of either his recording it or whoever posted the video or my watching it, um, <laughs> because I, I think that's really muddled. 
But I admit I felt really voyeuristic and it felt wrong. Um, but, but I kept watching, kind of like a rubbernecking driver. And, and tears came to my eyes as I watched this inevitable and painful collision between his state president, who, who began the meeting by bearing his testimony that he knows the church is true, and he used those kind of very you know, solid words, and Runnels, who was sitting there pleading for answers to questions. Now, I don't know either Runnels or the state president, so I, I have no, um, no background. I have no reason to doubt anybody's sincerity here. I suspect the state president truly believed that Runnels uh, was hurting people's faith. And um, I'm sure that Runnels, at some point at least, in any way, he, he truly wanted answers to questions. But the differing worldviews of the man of surety and the man of doubt led to this inevitable conclusion, and it was sad and painful. But even if the state president had tried to answer Runnels' questions, there were always more. What Runnels and other like him are experiencing is not a crisis of information. It's a crisis of confidence. A, a crisis of confidence in church authority and institutions and a crisis of confidence in scripture and prophetic, name, prophetic utterance. Now, let me illustrate what I mean by kind of going through an example here. And I think it's one we're all familiar with. Let's look at the topic of race and the priesthood for a minute. Now, I grew up in the late 60s and 70s, and it was commonly taught that black people were not given the priesthood because they were descendants of Cain and less valiant than the pre-existence. Now, if you were to ask anyone at the time, I think you would have found very few who didn't believe this was church doctrine. When in 1978, though, when the church announced that the priesthood would be extended to black members, I, I didn't know anybody who wasn't happy about that. So it, it's not a, I don't, I don't think this was kind of a racism thing in Utah. We didn't have races in Utah County in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> <laughs> it was white. Um, so, uh, but many members continued to believe the explanations for the ban that had been given in the past. And in fact, when I tried to correct some of those explanations in a gospel doctrine lesson once, um, a stake high councilman really got mad at me. Anyway, so flash forward to February of 2012. We're in the middle of Mitt Romney's second presidential run, and Jason Horowitz, a Washington Post reporter, published a story called uh, The Genesis of a Church Stand Church's Stand on Race, in which he quoted beloved BYU professor Randy Bott. This is why BYU professors are not supposed to talk to the press, I think. Boss re Bott repeated many of the pre-1978 justifications for the ban and went on to compare blacks, this is a quote, with a young child prematurely asking for the keys to her ca father's car and explains that similarly until 1978, the Lord determined that blacks were not ready for the priesthood. Now the following day, this didn't take long, the following day the church issued a statement denouncing Bott's words and stating that, quote, the origins of the priesthood ban, or the origins of priesthood availability, are not entirely clear. Some explanations with respect to this matter were made in the absence of direct revelation, and references to these explanations are sometimes cited in publications. These previous personal statements do not represent church doctrine. Now we have a gospel topic essay on race and the priesthood, which doesn't shy away from recognizing that, ban, that the ban was born in an era of racism. It also doesn't really lay the ban at racism's feet. 
So let me emphasize that I'm thrilled to see these essays. I'm, I, I think that's it's really important and it, it, they provide much needed historical context for issues that we've hitherto uh, been unwilling to discuss. However, after reading the essay, a member of the church has to make a choice. Either, as the Book of Mormon musical puts it, in 1978 God changed his mind about black people, or Brigham Young and everyone down to Spencer W. Kimball got it wrong. Either God or Brigham have to get thrown under the bus, it seems like. If we choose God, we have to ask what kind of God would do that. And if we choose Brigham, how can we trust any church authority when they talk about contemporary issues, for example? The questions answered by the essay lead to a bigger question, a crisis of not just faith, but of credibility. As a friend of mine recently put it, my kids aren't asking, how do I reconcile four, visions of the, four versions of the first vision? They're asking, how can I trust the church is getting anything right? when the past seems so full of screw-ups, blunder, prejudice, and evil. A popular apologetic work published in 1960 that attempted to rationalize the priesthood ban emphasized that church members had three choices. Become apologizers for the church, seeing the institution and its leaders as racist and old-fashioned. Confess that we don't know the reason and accept it on blind faith. Or proclaim that it is correct doctrine and explain it. And he argued that only the last of those choices, to proclaim and explain the ban, were tenable, was tenable. Quote, if we as members of the church are going to pick and choose among the prophet's teachings and say this one is of God, we can accept it, but this one is of man, we will reject that, then we're undermining the whole structure of faith. That's from this book called Mormonism and the Negro. Now, times have changed since 1960, but I still hear often this same kind of all-or-nothing rhetoric. Either Joseph Smith was a prophet or the whole church is false. Either the Book of Mormon is ancient or it's fraud. Um, I don't think these comments really serve us well in a post-internet era where church members may discover one not-so-very-pleasant thing about Joseph Smith, and then the whole structure of their faith comes tumbling down. Now, our ancestors lived in a different world than we do. And there was no real distinction between the world of the real and the world of religion. As Patrick Mason has said, in, in, in pre-modern world, the notion of a lone individual switching religions, let alone leaving religion altogether, was exceptionally rare and in most times and places inconceivable. Now the modern secular world and the religious world don't overlap so well. There are those who spend their whole lives without doubting religious truth claims. Faith comes easy for them. But then there are those of us who doubt. And as with Jeremy Runnels and his stake president, these worlds often clash. The stake president lives in what Paul Ricoeur would call a pre-critical world. And Runnels lives in a critical world. And no matter how much either may have desired, Runnels can't go back to the pre-critical world of belief. We're not alone in confronting modernity. Um, I've just mentioned um, Paul Ricoeur, who was a philosopher that I found particularly helpful in, in uh, facing down the clash of pre-critical pre and critical worldviews. Um, Ricoeur grew up a Protestant in France. When I served my mission in France, I can tell you that must have been a rough gig. <laughs> France is Catholic. <laughs> not very Catholic, but Catholic. Um, he, so he was a religious minority, 
And when Germans invaded France in 1940, he was captured and spent five years in a German POW camp. Now, after facing the evil of war, Recur couldn't go back to a faith that didn't account for what, what Richard Kearney has called the dark traversal of the abyss. Recur was of two hearts. He believed that religion needed to be subject to, to critical inquiry, but he also yearned for something more. He saw Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud as masters of what he called the school of suspicion, maître du soupçon, and the implications of their thought couldn't be ignored. Yet he also wanted a faith that could survive the onslaught of evil. Instead of a turbulent airplane, Recur uses a different metaphor to describe the, the journey of mind and heart. Beyond the desert of criticism, he says, we wish to be called again. Now, I love this, this image of the desert of criticism. Deserts are frightening, desolate places, yet they have deep significance in, in religious metaphor and allegory. They're places of testing and trial, but also of transformation and revelation. And being called again suggests a religious calling, a calling that passes into, through, and beyond criticism. Recur mapped out three stages of thought, a pre-critical, critical, and post-critical stage. The pre-critical stage he referred to as primary naivete. He's not using naive in a pejorative way, in a sense, but as a sense of innocence. Children are innocent. They're not. You know, it's not a pejorative to say children are naive. It's a place where religion and religious texts are taken at face value. The world we live in and the world of religion overlap to a large degree in that world. And we live within, or within our faith without probing it. In the critical stage, the two worlds gradually move apart and we begin to interrogate our faith. Many literal meanings of our faith must give way to rational forces of modernity and now post-modernity. The critical stage is characterized by a hermeneutics of suspicion. We doubt. We no longer naively accept the world of the Bible and religion, but begin to hold them at a distance and examine them. There's no going back to where we were after we passed through the desert of criticism. The critical stage, though, is not something to be shunned, according to Recur. Rather, it's an important part of the journey. As Recur states, the disillusion of the myth as explanation is, is a necessary way to the restoration of myth as symbol. Thus, the time of restoration is not a different time from that of criticism. We are in every way children of criticism, and we seek to go beyond criticism by means of criticism, by a criticism that is no longer reductive, but restorative. Criticism actually wipes away the false images of God, that have accumulated over time and held us captive, allowing a new freedom to become and to worship the real God. As Recur puts it, an idol must die so that a symbol of being may begin to speak. But Recur argued for a post-critical stage of faith, or stage of life, um, what he termed a second naivete, where, no, where we no longer have the first faith of the simple soul, he said, but the second faith of one who is engaged in hermeneutics, whose faith has undergone criticism, a post-critical faith. As he stated, does that mean we can go back to the primitive naivete? Not at all. In every way, something has been lost, irremediably lost. Immediacy of belief. 
But if we can no longer live the great symbolisms of the sacred in accordance with the original belief in them, we can aim at a second naivete in and through criticism. In short, it's through interpreting that we can hear again. It is in this it is in hermeneutics that the symbol's gift of meaning and the endeavor to understand by deciphering are knotted together. The post-critical stage is a place we're called to again after our wandering in the desert of criticism, a home we once knew but see again with new eyes. The post-critical stage accepts the insights from criticism, no matter where they lead, but nevertheless seeks a life of faith, a deeper kind of faith. In this post-critical world, we are, as he puts it, animated by a double motivation. I love this. He says, a willingness to suspect and a willingness to listen, a vow of rigor and a vow of obedience. This stage refuses, as Richard Kearney notes, all absolute talk about the absolute, negative or positive. For it acknowledges that the absolute can never be understood absolutely by any single person or religion. That's interesting, because that's what Nietzsche taught me. Um, <laughs> so granted, Ricoeur was not saying that everyone would pass through all of these stages. Some likely peer into the desert of criticism and retreat, frightened by its foreboding terrain, and turn back once again to pre the pre-critical world. Surely others enter into the world of criticism and lose their faith altogether. I've known many people like this. Ricoeur offers the post-critical stages a possibility, a promised land after wandering in the desert. Now this is a world of faith rather than belief. It does not demand... It's, it's a world of faith rather than belief. And I want to emphasize the distinction between the two. It doesn't demand that one accept things beyond our better judgment but that we examine them and hold them up to the light of criticism. I think this can actually be a much deeper faith and a more humane and ethical faith. Let me give you an example of how a post-critical faith can be more satisfying. In 1 Samuel 15, the Lord tells Saul, uh, through Samuel, to attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. This would be called genocide in our day. When Saul spares the livestock, the scripture reads that God regrets having King Saul or regrets having made Saul king, and Samuel chastises him, saying, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. A pre-critical reading of this scripture requires us to think God condones genocide. A critical reading of the text would recognize that this text was written by a relatively primitive tribal people that attributed a call for genocide to their God. But a post-critical reading of the scripture allows us to think ethically about this scripture, to hold it up in tension, recognizing that God's words are inevitably filtered through a cultural prism we can acknowledge that it is a misrepresentation of God's will and think deeply about how we might individually be justifying acts of cruelty in God's name. So what about modern prophets? Do I have to believe everything they say unconditionally? Well, actually, I don't think so. Now, I know this sounds heretical, but hang on here. I'm going to quote a First Presidency member, so it's going to be okay. Um, in fact, I think we're actually specifically called upon to exercise judgment as we listen to the Spirit. President J. Reuben Clark once spoke on the subject of when are the writings of church leaders entitled to the claim of Scripture. And he gave a very 
post-critical understanding of how that process works. He started by turning to the scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants that the question is based on. Whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture. Then President Clark stated, the very words of the Revelation recognize that the brethren may speak when they are not moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Yet only when they do speak as so moved upon is what they say scripture. So how do we know when they're moved upon? Clark goes on to say, we can tell when the speakers are moved upon by the Holy Ghost only when we ourselves are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. In a way, this completely shifts the responsibility from them to us to determine when they so speak. That's from him. He went on to quote Brigham Young. He says, I am more afraid, this is Brigham now, I am more afraid that this people have so much confidence in their leaders that they will not inquire for themselves of God, whether they are led by him. I'm fearful they settle down into a state of blind self-security, trusting their eternal destiny in the hands of their leaders with a reckless confidence in it, that in itself would thwart the purposes of God in their salvation and weaken the influence they would give to their leaders. Did they know for themselves by the revelations of Jesus that they are led in the right way? Let every man and woman know by the whisperings of the Spirit of God to themselves whether their leaders are walking in the path the Lord dictates or not. Notice Brigham says not, so we don't have to believe that out of God's stuff. We don't want to. In a post-critical worldview, we must accept that both scripture and prophets are imperfect, but they still can help us access God. We must approach both, therefore, with a kind of double-mindedness, as Recur would say, with a willingness to suspect, a willingness to listen, a vow of rigor, and a vow of obedience. This changes our understanding of faith. Faith is something beyond belief. My beliefs may change. I may discover new things about the church and its history, but my faith doesn't depend on belief. The Catholic theologian Roger Haight has shown the problem with, with confusing the two. Because of the special importance of beliefs and their role of defining the community's faith, faith itself tends to be confused with, collapsed into, and mistaken for holding on to these beliefs. For this faith, which is now belief, means assenting to an objective set of beliefs about reality summarized in a set of propositions. So the problem I think Haidt is pointing to is that beliefs become increasingly tied to faith. When belief is shown to be false, then we lose faith. And furthermore, when we lose sight of the true transcendent, faith becomes a form of what Haidt calls ordinary knowledge rather than a meaningful way of living and loving. I think it's significant that the words faith and fidelity come from a common root. Faith, like fidelity to a spouse, is relational. It involves another. And it depends on commitment and trust. Faith mediates my relationship with God just as fidelity does my relationship with my wife. In both cases, the relationships are created out of affection, established by covenants, nourished by service, preserved by fidelity, renewed by forgiveness, and sustained by patience and love. Now, I believe I've, better, uh, I've developed into a better person, not simply because of the joy of both relationships, um, but also because of the pain, the self-revelation and repentance they forced me to confront. Because of my membership in the church and my marriage to my wife, I'm a better person than I would have been otherwise. Not that that's that great, but both have nurtured me and blessed me in ways I don't fully comprehend. Now, let me just switch gears for a second here 
and offer some advice for those who have friends or family going through a faith crisis. So the first thing I would say is don't freak out. I know this is hard because when you first hear about someone's faith crisis, that's going to be a tough one. And if it's your spouse or child, it can seem like the end of the world because we Mormons put so much emphasis on the eternal nature of families. But if you react with anger or you let your emotions overpower you, that loved one is going to feel like he or she can't be honest with you anymore and future discussions about faith are over before they've even begun. Second, just listen. Empathy, knowing that somebody really hears and understands what you have to say is crucial for someone going through a faith crisis. Now, I think we can learn a lot from looking at Job's friends and how they approach his faith, his life crises. Uh, in the beginning, uh, they just sit with him. So they sit down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Speechlessness is appropriate for the initial shock of hearing about someone's pain, and Job's friends are correct with this. Um, so correct that it's still a tradition to mourn silently or nearly silently with grieving loved ones in Judaism for seven days, sitting Shiva, uh, in, in many Jewish communities. But later, each one of his friends allows his own sense of reason to interfere with their pure grief and sympathy. Each one finds a way to blame Job for his troubles. Surely he must have sinned for God to allow such suffering. Most scholars now believe that the introduction and conclusion to Job were written by a different author, and the middle parts were probably uh, different, so that would explain the discrepancy. But, but follow Job's friends first, their first response. Sit and listen. Maybe not for seven days and nights, but just be there. So the third thing I'd say is don't judge. Just as Job's friends assume Job's suffering must have been caused by something Job did, we often assume that a faith crisis is caused by bad behavior. I've heard speculation many times from Latter-day Saints that people who leave the church do so because they've committed some kind of grievous sin or they want to commit a grievous sin. There are actually many reasons to doubt. And more often than not, it's people who are doing what's right, attending church, reading scriptures, going to the temple who confront a faith, a faith crisis. This one is hard, much harder done than said. Judging is an almost instantaneous reaction for many, many people of religious conviction to hear of doubt, of anger, and confusion is the Pavlovian bell that makes our judging salivary, salivary glands kick in. Resist. Detach. Avoid the instantaneous response that will inevitably pop instantly to mind words from some manual or some Sunday school lesson to explain and excuse. These reactions are not news to the one in the faith crisis. They've already thought of these things. That's exactly what, why they feel so terrible and are trying to talk to you as if, that, as if you were safe. So be safe by not reacting. Bite your tongue. Which leads to, for don't preach. While it's impossible to... It, while it's impossible not to long for your loved one to come around and find renewed faith, preaching is the last thing they want to hear. It's guaranteed to shut down the conversation. Now, this is another tricky bit because we often do it when we don't think we do, we're doing it. But if your words instruct, if they have imperative verbs or any language that could be from a manual, just shut up. <laughs> listen, to what they're, listen to what they are hearing you say. And if it sounds like a seminary film, 
close your mouth right that minute. Just shut up. And bearing your testimony can come off to them as condescending and presumptuous. Just listen. They don't want an answer, at least not yet. They want comfort. They want to know they can trust you, that you care. They want a friend. Remember the wise Anne Lamott adage. What, W-A-I-T, wait. Why am I talking? <laughs> Five, be prepared to learn something. A person going through a faith crisis has inevitably encountered some information or a worldview that's new to them and will likely be new to you. It's a big world out there. Don't assume that you've got all the answers. People who, who do have rarely asked enough questions. Plan on doing some reading. Expect to be surprised. Anticipate your own doubts. If you've really listened with empathy, if you put yourself in their shoes, you're going to start seeing things the way they see them. Now, as scary as all this is, this leads to six. Don't lose confidence. If you've come this far, you can't go back, at least not to the way you were. You're just like Adam and Eve after they were kicked out of the garden. Your eyes are now open. Your world and your loved one's world are never going to be the same. But in Mormon theology, Adam and Eve were never meant to remain in the garden. They were meant to leave it. That lone and dreary world is where the learning begins and the progress begins. So don't be afraid. It's not all that lone and dreary out there. Growth and wonder and beauty lay ahead. My father-in-law used to say that the gospel is like a football. You can kick it around, but it's still there. Believe it. Trust it. There are satisfying answers to questions, new ways of seeing the world that will allow you to keep faith. But know that the new answers and new worldview are going to be a lot more complex than the old ones. Just as children's physical and cognitive abilities develop and grow, so too should their faith. Make room for paradox. Accept complexity. Savor depth and nuance. The gospel's still there, but it's going to be nothing like what your childlike self thought it was. It's going to be bigger, more expansive, more robust, more exciting, but it's not going to be tidy. Number seven. Remember that whatever happens, it's not the end of the road. It may be that your loved one stops going to church, maybe even leaves the church, maybe stops believing in God altogether. I know this messes with the traditional narrative that we've come to, be, uh, come to accept as Latter-day Saints. If you've been sealed in the temple and you're faithful, that you'll be together for eternity. But trust in God's grace and mercy. Our heavenly parents have an eternity to work with us. And I can't believe they'd allow 60 or 70 or 80 short earth years to completely ruin our chances for an eternity of joy and togetherness. Now, if you want to blow your little minds um, about uh, the, how vast eternity is, I can recommend a book for you, Stephen Peck's um, Short Stay in Hell. It, it will mess your mind up. As bad as Nietzsche, but he's a member of the church and a good guy. Um, remember, Mormonism is an optimistic religion. No one, almost no one, is going to hell. Because in Mormon theology, we don't really have a hell. At least not the traditional one. And we'll continue to grow and develop in the hereafter. Our theology of salvation must embrace a universe as limitless as our cosmology does. Our heavenly parents love their children at least as much as we love our own. And I'd wager they love them much more. Their hearts seek us out. Their desires for our happiness and well-being are limitless. Gospel means good news, not damnation, death, and destruction. Christ tells us that in this world you shall have tribulation. It's tough out there. We're going to get dirty, bruised, banged up. But he reminds us, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And he means it. It's not finished. 
I didn't leave anything out. <coughs> My final suggestion here is preserve the relationship. Above all, value the person over the declaration of faith or loss of faith. Patrick Mason has stated that the greatest test of discipleship for our generation is how we respond to those who doubt. I can't agree more. Just as God doesn't withhold love on the basis of what one believes, neither should we. Don't let this change come between you and your friend or your loved one. Extend more love, not less. Sometimes people worry that having a doubter around family will cause doubt to spread like a contagion, that children might be enticed toward bad behavior or bad ideas. But the way you treat the doubter, the way that you extend or withhold love, sends an even more powerful message to all involved. Worry less about corrupting influences and worry more about being kind. Joseph Smith called friendship one of the great grand fundamental principles of Mormonism. He further stated that, quote, I don't care what a man's character is. If he's my friend, a true friend, I'll be a friend to him. Mormonism is an inclusive religion. Love on. And may I love, may I add, love doesn't mean tolerate. If you have, uh, if you have shifted from loving someone to tolerating them, they can tell. Here's a test. Can you still laugh at their jokes? Can you still smile unreservedly, unreservedly without a trace of pity or sorrow or worry and furrowed eyebrows when you greet them? Um, the scriptures say that we're to love one another, not tolerate one another. Our heavenly parents love and nurture all their children, and so should we, no matter whether we live in a pre-critical or post-critical or critical world. We're called to love our families and friends as well as strangers and enemies, no matter which world they live in. So I'm going to wrap up here, I promise. Finally, I just want to address this issue of, uh, is there room in the church for a post-critical Mormon? I'm not saying post-Mormon, post-critical Mormon. I believe there is, but I think it requires us post-critical types to highlight the things we love over the things we doubt. For me, I love the way the church forces me to confront and serve and love other people. Eugene England said that the church is as true as the gospel because it's concrete, not theoretical. In all its contradictions and problems, it's, it's at least as productive of good as is the gospel. It forces us to get real with our religion. It's a school of lies, he said. It was announced that I ran as a Democrat. I have to tell you, I, my ward was shocked when they found out. They were absolutely shocked. But you know what? A lot of them voted for me. It was, it was amazing to see how many loved me. And, and so, um, you know, if, if they can love a, a John Stewart, John Oliver watching progressive, you know, and I can, I mean, my home teacher was a, was a, a tea partier who, you know, we were on the opposite side of the page and he still voted for me. He had a lawn sign in his yard. I mean, we can like each other in the church. That's pretty concrete stuff. And in a world where Facebook friends can be sequestered into groups where we share our status updates with and those we don't, where we socialize with people of similar interests throughout the world but never talk to our next door neighbor, it's really worthwhile to be forced to work and love people who are radically different from us. The word religion comes from the Latin word, word religio, at least scholars think it does. Um, the same root as our word ligament. It's about binding together. In this case, binding together a community of people committed to God. It's about getting our living together, as Thoreau puts it. 
And Mormonism in particular is a system of belief that depends on community. We're saved as a community. If you are not one, you are not mine. Joseph Smith's Book of Moses shows us Enoch can glimpse God in the cosmos alone, but he can only be saved with the rest of his city. Community is central to Mormonism. Religion is a way of dedicating ourselves to helping each other, imperfectly as we may, and consecrating, that is, making sacred our lives. I don't believe you can make your life sacred alone. You need a community, not a community of people who are just like you, but a community of people who work together and love together, despite their differences, out of a shared devotion to charity, service, and God. I also love the unique theology of Mormonism. The beliefs that other Christian denominations consider heresies, that humans are pre-mortal and post-mortal um, beings, co-eternal with God, innocent, born innocent of Adam's sin, capable of limited, limitless potential. I love the teaching that the Godhead is composed of separate beings and have bodies, human and divine, that are eternal and holy. I believe these principles to be true not because I have any proof, because what proof could there be if I can't you know, believe anything? I can't know anything. But instead, I believe these concepts to be true because they taste good, as Joseph Smith put it in the King Follett Discourse. You say honey is sweet and so do I, he said. I can taste the spirit of eternal life. I know it's good, and when I tell you these things, which are given to me by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you're bound to receive them as sweet, and I rejoice more and more. Obviously, taste is a rather ill-defined and subjective method for discovering truth. Different people have different tastes. But Joseph Smith insisted these doctrines would taste good in the mouths of Christ's followers, and I find myself saying amen to that. For me, Mormonism just tastes good. I especially love the taste of LDS perspectives on the atonement, that Christ affected the possibility of both immortality and eternal life, resurrection and exaltation, on the cross and in Gethsemane, that by suffering human infirmities and temptations, uh, Christ learned how to succor his people according to their infirmities, and that the immensity of the atonement is gigantic, much greater than we can imagine, bringing together all things in one. All of these, and I, I love the fact that the humanity of Christ is as important to Mormons as his divinity, that his mortality gives him the compassion to save, and that his divinity, divinity lifts our humanity from degradation and mortality. All of these intriguing theological concepts were made possible by the unique Mormon canon. The language of Mormon scripture has been written in my heart. It's become my way of thinking and feeling. It's the language of my faith. Whatever process Joseph Smith used to give those scriptures life, no matter how flawed an individual he might have been, he had an expansive mind and a heart tuned to the endless potential of humanity. I also love Mormon rituals. I've witnessed the power of many religious traditions, the ritualized call-and-response sermons of uh, Protestant worship, the reenactment of the Lord's Supper in high clergy uh, within architectural splendor of a Gothic cathedral and the dappled lighting of stained-glass windows, the sincere and humble submission of Muslims of prayer, the gospel choirs bearing enthusiastic witness of God's bountiful grace. After I understood and acclimatized myself to these other ways of worship, I came to believe that God truly honors these things. But nevertheless, I believe the rituals unique to Mormonism, especially temple work and sealings, are uniquely trusted to our faith at this time. And I have felt priesthood, some kind of divine power, throw through me as I've given blessings and baptized and confirmed and ordained my children. It's all unique and powerful, holy and efficacious. 
I can still say now that I know the church is true, but I mean something very different now than I did when I was a young missionary in France. I mean that I'm committing myself to this church as much as I did to my wife when we were first married, and as I do when I repeat the magic words, I love you as a vow of allegiance. I'm saying that based on the elusive assurance of life experiences and the inner desires of my heart, based on love and devotion, I'm placing my hopes with the LDS community. I'm confident that as in my relationship with my wife, my relationship with the church will evolve, but I'm devoted to continuing the journey together. This kind of knowing is very different from the kind I had as a missionary, yet the words are the same. I feel I've come back to a place I can only now recognize. In the words of T.S. Eliot, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. My testimony, then, is a commitment of the heart, a promise made to a God I can only glimpse and to a community with whom I share my yearnings for immortality and eternal life. Thank you. I guess we can ask questions and pretend like I have an answer. <laughs> yes. I was wondering, um, how did Hugh Nibley respond to your doubting? <laughs> hmm, that's a good question. I don't know if we ever talked about it, frankly. That's really a, a good question. Yeah, he was just a guy who believed. I mean, he had he had a period of his life where he didn't believe. Uh, where he started to question and doubt. And he had kind of a miraculous experience that I never got to have. Um, he was given a blessing by a general authority and told that um, he'd receive an answer to the questions he had. Then a few days later, his appendix burst, and he ended up in Loma Linda Hospital getting his appendix that removed. And he swallowed his tongue in the process and ended up dying for a short period of time. And so he had one of these near-death experiences that have been talked about. And he said he didn't see anybody or experience, you know, any, any, uh, anything like that. But he said he was just felt alive and he felt invigorated and his mind was there. And he said, uh, most of all, he felt like he could just learn everything. He, he missed out on a lot of mathematics, he said. And so he was really happy because he could learn all that in just a few minutes, he figured. So, yeah, he, he was, he just seemed to... No, for that. So not very. But but you know, one thing I really admired about him is that his vision of Mormonism was really broad. Um, he had a, a really expansive view of Mormonism. Um, I remember somebody approaching him once and saying something kind of dismissive of Buddhism, and he said, "I, I really I like Buddhism. I'm very fond of that." You know. Um, and and he he just he seemed very generous, and I think that same generosity is in Joseph Smith. You know, he didn't uh, he he seemed to be very happy bringing stuff together and not to uh, you know excluding things. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but yeah. Yes. Well, the man who gave him the blessing was Matthias Calvin, yeah. who was of fellowship apostle. Yeah, <laughs> he was excommunicated <laughs> actually. This fellowship for refusing to stop marrying politically. Yeah. No, that's true, and that was uh, not mentioned in in the video that they did of him. But uh, that that's true. 
it is in the book. Um, and, and, and I think that's kind of interesting because, you know, he never denied the church, but he, you know, parted ways there for a while. And it was during that period where he would, had been, you know, left from the church that he, he did give him the blessing. And it was evidently inspired. Yeah, exactly. And that's, a, that's an interesting point. So, I mean, again, I think this gives us a great deal of hope for, you know, worrying about people who leave. They, they don't have to stay gone. <laughs> we, I think Matthias is probably in a pretty good place. <laughs> yes. Your seven, eight, nine steps here, um, they, they go down an inevitable course. Yeah. And so I guess the question becomes, is, is there ever a chance that following them allows people to leave that inevitable course that you outlined here? Where <clears throat> you, you know, how do you follow the inevitable course? I, I get that. And you're trying to be yeah. supportive through it. But when is the time when if people feel this love that you're trying to get us to express, when is the time that they're most vulnerable to feel it and, if you will, resolve without leaving the church totally? Well, you know, I think one of the things that I really learned in France, so this is going back a long time, is that people tend to have their own agency, as frustrating as that can be. There was a book that was really popular in my mission field for a while. It was called Drawing on the Powers of Heaven. And uh, I, I, I thought it was really a great book, had some really inspiring stuff. But the idea was that if you had faith enough, people would listen and they'd join the church. And it was just a matter of faith. And so, you know, you'd have a companion who you'd knock on a door and they'd turn you away and he'd say, you've got to have more faith, companion, because I know I've got plenty. Um, and, and, um, that didn't work out so well in France. We, we knocked on a lot of doors and people didn't answer. And I know that we had a lot of faith, at least initially. By the end, it started to win. <laughs> And, and so, I, I mean, I think the idea that we can somehow control what other people do is, is an illusion. And the best way of influencing people is to love them. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I am speaking from personal experience here. I've had two children leave. And um, I am not going to sacrifice my relationship with my kids because of that. I'm, you know, Boyd, I think just to follow up on what you said, that the point you made earlier about there being an eternity for things to be sorted out is important here because as members of the church, we tend to be taught that, you know, if we don't get our families all gathered around us to die, that's it. Yeah. We'll never see them again. And so people get freaked out if one of their children leave and don't know really how to handle that even. But if you look at it, I mean, I really resonated with that comment you made that eternity is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, calm down and trust in the Lord. And you know, I uh, so so just to get into a little bit of speculation here, this issue of progressing after this world has been something that general authorities have wrestled with. And some general authorities have been very happy with the idea that you can actually jump kingdoms in the afterworld. Some haven't. I, I certainly think it motivates people to think that you know this is all we've got. But read Steve Peck if you want to think about eternity for a while. It's, it's pretty vast. <laughs> so, yeah. Just curious what your opinion is uh, on apologetics groups like Fair and Farms and Maxwell. 
in general and yeah. also um, do you think it has a net positive or negative impact on, on the soft landing for people having a faith crisis? That's a tough one. I, I know a lot of the people involved in those. I think the Maxwell Institute has shifted in their approach. I think it's really important to have good information out there. So I think in general they do, they do good work. And, and I have to confess here, I think my father-in-law was to blame for some of this. He was a very snarky individual. He, he knew how to really put people into place. And uh, I, I think some people at Maxwell Institute um, and farms before that um, inherited some of that snark. And I don't think that was very productive. It may have been okay in, his, in, in Nibley's era because we were more insular. It was a smaller group of people, we didn't communicate as much with the outside world, I don't think, but in the internet age, that snarkiness just doesn't work very well, and I think it comes off not too good. So it, 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 I, I do think information is good, I'm, I'm pleased to see that out there. More information, the better, but snark doesn't help much. I guess that's a diplomatic way of answering that, huh? Yeah. Uh, my question has to do with uh, literal Mormonism versus metaphoric Mormonism. Yeah. First is President Uchtdorf a metaphoric Mormon. Uh, is there a place for more esoteric belief in Mormonism? And if so, how do you do that? How do you mix oil and water? <laughs> you know, we're a tiny church and we've had a short history. But most religions have to learn how to accommodate different groups of people of different types. Um, Houston Smith, who's a scholar of religious studies that I really admired, talked about how India had, uh, and I'm not going to remember these four, but he, he said that one of the things that was really remarkable about India is that it accommodated different people's tendencies, of different people's modes of accessing the divine, and some people are kind of like me, they're the brainy, you know, they spend their time kind of thinking about God. Some people are more meditative, they spend their time, you know, in, in meditation. Some people are, are into the kind of, they're more affective, is the word he used, they're, they're into loving. And some people, I think I got them all, that's pretty good. Um, some people are, serve God, or worship God by serving people and, and Him. And, you know, I think, Learning how to accommodate different types of people in Mormonism is something that we've got to do because uh, we're growing and we're we're get, you know we're kind of you know if you think about it in terms of the history of other religions we're kind of in our adolescence and we're time to move on and I think we've got to kind of grow up to where and that does that sounds pejorative we've got to mature to the point where we're accepting of a broader tent I think but. I mean, I would rather have somebody in church who doesn't accept the Book of Mormon as ancient text than have somebody not go to church because of that. I, I think sometimes we get too obsessed with the purity of our pews than we are with. A church is a place for healing and growth, and it's, it's a hospital for sick souls. You know, and, and we're all sick in different ways. As President Hoopdorf said, we all have you know, different sins. We... Some are just just aren't as visible or as smelly, right? Um, so my I have a neighbor who, you know, smokes and his sin is 
is smelly, but um, mine aren't smelly, but it certainly is bad or worse than his. So my parents drank coffee, and if that was all they did and still went to church, that would be great. I wish they had gone to church. That about it, Maura? Well, actually, I have one more question, since there's a a lull. Talk about your experience and your plans regarding dialogue. You've had one issue that has come out. Yeah. How's that been, and what are you looking forward to? Yeah, this is a fun adventure to start on. I'm, I'm really happy about this. I, I was really fortunate when I, I married Zina, Hugh Nibley's daughter, and then I ended up in the BYU student ward with Eugene England as the bishop. And Gene was the first, he was the found, one of the founding editors of Dialogue, and um, a huge influence in my life, and, and just a man I really adore. And, and so being able to kind of step into that role is really exciting to me. Uh, so our first issue is out. I'm, I'm, uh, it, it's not in print yet, but it's up on the internet, um, the, the first one I've done. And we've got uh, an article by Fiona Givens in there that's kind of earth-shattering, I think, for some people. Um, and uh, we've got a Mormon Catholic dialogue in there that I think is really exciting. Um, and... Uh, I, I'm I'm just thrilled. I, I really want dialogue to be a place for this kind of discourse and openness, and and uh, you know I I think it can you know one of the things that I think really helped me is that I read dialogue as a college student because I confronted this stuff in a depth that you don't get from a blog, and and so you know blogs can be pretty. I've found that if I write too much on my blog, people complain that it's too long. And it's like a three-page paper. Um, so, you know, you don't get much depth in that. And dialogue, I think, really can, can bring in more depth and richness. And Mormonism is just so robust and exciting that uh, I, I think that conversation is really fun. Is it too early to mention, preview some of the things you got coming up? Or? Um, we've got some really interesting articles in the next issue on um, teen suicide and homosexuality. Um, which are going to be interesting. We've got a history of the of Exponent 2 in the next issue, uh, some terrific poetry. I really want to emphasize a lot of women's history, too, because I've, I've found that, I agree that that's something that's uh, really underemphasized. Um, and uh, what else? I'm drawing a blank. Well, that's okay. Here, I mean, but <laughs> I want to get a feel for it. Yeah. No, there's some really. I'm I'm excited about things. We've got some really exciting stuff coming up. There was another question. Um, Might require a longer answer. Uh, <laughs> I'm one of those who, as we call it, have been blessed with that ability to believe from childhood and never doubt it. Um, when you had your faith crisis, was uh, and, and I. Uh, where the people do need to pursue a different lifestyle. Was your problem with organized religion? Was it disbelief in the first vision for a time? Uh, what, what caused it? What did you feel after the darkness? Was it just, this can't be right? Just to explain it. Sure. No, you know, I, I'm probably not a good person to ask that question of because I think mine was probably weirder than other people's um, and more prolonged. Um, it wasn't church history stuff that bothered me. It was, like I say, more fundamental issues of how do we know anything. You know, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm quite comforted by scriptures that talk about how we see through a glass darkly, because I, 
you know, I, I, and again, this issue of depression for me has been a real obstacle. Um, when, when I've suffered depression, I've felt like there's been a, just a, a brass ceiling between me and the heavens. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I've really dealt with. And, and uh, so I would say more of my faith crises have come from that kind of thing than really confronting church history or anything. And let me emphasize, I never felt like leaving. Uh, I always felt comfort in church. I just couldn't bear my testimony for a long time. So, you know, I'd go to church, I'd teach. I, I didn't have any problem teaching. I've always felt really a kind of love of, of church. Church has always been a place I've really enjoyed being. So I, I know that's probably weird for some people because I know some people find sacrament meeting boring. Um, <laughs> but, but for me, it's really an enriching place to be. So, so that's never been an issue, but, but I think my struggles with depression have been probably the most darkest times. And, and what's been so remarkable to me is how that is chemically based, you know? I mean, taking Prozac the first time was just like this. It was like the heavens opened. It was just amazing. So if you're depressed, I recommend drugs. <laughs> I have a testimony of that. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, really appreciate your emphasis on love, especially for those who struggle. Uh, my question is, is how do you handle hearing general authorities, um, you know, like Elder Nelson describing some members are servants of Satan, or Holland's frustration about people who jump ship or faithlessness? Or, and, well, uh, again, I think Terrell Gibbons has a good discussion of Terrell and Fiona, actually, who are dear friends of mine. Or both of them, but um, they have a really good discussion in the Crucible of Doubt about this notion of what a church authority is and how God kind of is giving them power and trust, but it doesn't mean that He thinks everything they do is perfect. I mean, uh, I think it's Elder Nelson who said that you know God has to work with imperfect people, and we probably have to put up with that too. So yeah, I mean, there's there's moments that are painful. Um, I, I probably would be described as a serpent, serpent of, servant of Satan in that case because I have issues with that policy issue. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that's not going to stop me from being at church. And I think, in fact, it's more important that I be at church because I know that there's gay kids in my ward and I want to be the person who's there who's not going to freak out when they come out. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.